This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The Lord God blesses his church with uh, all kinds of spiritual gifts to build us up. Um, and he's marvellously blessed St Mark's, but in particular, he's uniquely blessed us by giving us Dr Karen Sawada, who's an Egyptologist. So I thought it would be entirely appropriate, since we're going through the book of Exodus, to invite Dr Sawada as our resident Egyptologist, who God has given us, to preach to us this morning. Thank you, Karen. Let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it in our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Ever experienced a plague? Well, I met two people in the congregation at 8am this morning who had both experienced a plague of mice. In fact, the plague of mice in 1993 was the worst mice plague ever to hit Australia. According to National Geographic, China and Australia are the only countries in the world that ever experienced plagues of mice. And at their worst, it can get up to 3,000 mice per hectare. That is a lot of mice. Well, spare a thought for the ancient Egyptians, who over a period of six months experienced 10 plagues. 10 plagues. Frogs, gnats, flies and others in quick succession. The tenth and final plague was devastating. Death. It must have seemed like their gods had gone crazy. And even in our time, it sometimes seems that the world is in chaos. The world is out of control. The things we trust fail us. But like the Egyptians, we trust the wrong things. We heard last week Moses... In the desert, he met God in the burning bush and received instructions from the Lord to return to Egypt. His mission, should he choose to accept it, was to do the work of the Lord by rescuing the Hebrews from oppression and taking them into the wilderness to worship the Lord. To do this, Moses instructs, uh, God instructs Moses to contend directly with the king of Egypt, with Pharaoh, leading to Moses' all-too-human plea, O oh Lord, please send someone else. But God is with him. God prepares him by enabling Aaron uh, to assist, and he gives both men the courage to wield his power through their hands. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 1, God even tells Moses that I have made you a god to Pharaoh. Such is the power and authority that Moses will wield on God's behalf. And Moses will have plenty of marvels up his sleeve, as we shall see, to demonstrate God's supernatural power. So Moses returns to Egypt. The Hebrews are still enslaved. And we're told from the text that the uh, Hebrews re resided in the land of Goshen. Now, we don't actually know where Goshen was, but when we look at the, the place names in chapters 1 to 14 of Exodus, it helps us place this region roughly in the northeastern delta of Egypt, uh, of uh, north of modern Cairo. Of course, Cairo didn't exist in those days, but that helps you to place it somewhere on a map. We're also told that there's a new king on the throne. 
Now, we don't know the name of this king either, and the Bible doesn't tell us his name, and the Egyptian texts don't tell us his name either. We don't even know precisely when to place these events. There's no timeline mentioned in the Bible, but there are clues, and we can place these clues together, and as a result, uh, orthodox commentators have located the, uh, the events that we're talking about at this time somewhere between 1450 BC and 1230 BC, so about over three and a half, about 3,300 3, 3, years ago. Most scholarly opinion favours the 13th century and the time of Ramses II, the great king known as Ramses the Great. But to the Bible writers, the name of the king was not a critical detail in recording the event. What was important was what Pharaoh did. So in chapter 7, we see that Moses and Aaron go to this king asking for the release of the Hebrews that they might worship in the wilderness. And what follows is a minor contest of snakes. Now, the serpent was a very distinct creature because it was feared for reasons both cosmic and physical. It was an expression in itself of various gods and ideas. But importantly, the cobra goddess of the delta, Wajet, was a symbol of kingship worn on the crowns of the kings of Egypt themselves. Now, this is uh, interesting because Pharaoh's reaction to Aaron's snake trick is to summon his sorcerers and magicians who likewise turn their staffs into snakes. He would have thought that the king of Egypt might be a little bit concerned to see, uh, to see this, this happen, but no, he just conjures up his, or gets his conjurers to come and try and do the same. But Aaron's snake actually gobbles up these, the snakes of the Egyptian magicians. Now, I have to say that although it's not mentioned here in this text, the Egyptian magicians would have been very, very concerned about this because their role, their job was to interpret signs and wonders. So when they see their snakes being gobbled up by the leaders of the Hebrews, they are getting, they would be very, very anxious about this. Uh, and indeed, that would have been a, a cause of great alarm, but not apparently to Pharaoh himself. And we learn in verse 14 that his heart is hardened and he says no. But friends, this is where the actual contest begins. And this is not a contest between Yahweh uh, and, the, and, the, and the gods of Egypt, although it is in a sense. It's not a contest between, uh, between the gods of Egypt and Moses. It's not even a contest between Pharaoh and Moses, although at first pass it looks like it is. This is actually a contest between God, the God of the universe, and the king of Egypt. And in reality, it's a contest between God and all of humanity. Indeed, we see in chapter 7, verse 5, God's, uh, what God thinks about this. And God's purpose here is the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. He, through the, these acts and the obstinance of Pharaoh, will bring judgment on the land. So God instructs Moses and Aaron to act. And the first of these ten plagues, as we've read this morning, sees the life-giving waters of the Nile turn to blood. Now, there is no hiding this from the people of Egypt. This is not a contest taking place in the palace between the leaders of the people. This is a public test. With each refusal of Pharaoh, uh, to release the Pharaoh, to release the Hebrews, another plague is invoked in order, frogs, lice, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, 
and finally death. And there's a pattern here. There is also an escalation of risk for the Egyptians and in the severity and nature of the plagues that are visited upon them. There is also a natural order to the sequence. The nature, the very nature of the first six plagues, in order, the Nile turning to blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the pestilence and boils, this actually places the timing of these plagues uh, towards the end of the annual Nile flood. Now this event, uh, which in fact still continued until the, uh, the Nile was, was, had a dam built across it uh, 100 years ago, saw the mighty river naturally, flow, naturally overflow every year and cover the land with water. So, and then it would recede again around September, October. So we can actually place the, the, the receding of the, la of, of, of the Nile at that time. And at that time also frogs would appear. Not plagues of frogs, but it was common for frogs to appear. But at this point, the frogs came in a massive, uh, in such a massive number. The consequence, of course, was, uh, was dead fish. Uh, the frogs themselves, once the plague had receded, were, uh, were very smelly which of course brings forth further disaster, flies, disease and lice. Now of course the magicians and the sorcerers could replicate the Nile, uh, the blood Nile and the frogs, uh, but their power failed beyond that. The environment on which the Egyptians had depended became chaotic and dangerous. It's one thing to be shoveling frogs out of your bedroom but quite another for your animals to start dying and for your limbs to be covered in boils. Not just you, but everybody else. And even the magician, magicians facing, Moses, facing off Moses had boils and they couldn't, they couldn't enter the court. Now, if you've even suffered one boil, you will recall how painful that infection can be. So this is, this is a very, very serious matter. So at this point, and we're only up to plague number six, the state of order in the universe known as Mart, Mart in religious thought, must have appeared unstable, very unstable and chaotic to the Egyptians. And you know what? It was Pharaoh who was responsible for maintaining order. In Egyptian religious and political thought, it was his role. He was responsible for mediating that order between people and the gods. The plagues are a direct challenge to his divine authority not only to his political authority, but his divine authority. And as the plagues continue, we see Pharaoh trying to bargain the end of each plague with Moses and Aaron. By plague number seven, the plague of hail, the recalcitrant king is still saying no. Up until now, the king seems to have been rather immune from the effects of the plagues. And indeed, indeed the texts tell us in chapter 9, verse 14, that he will now be personally affected. And there's several plagues to go. He's also aware that by this stage, the Hebrews in Goshen have been ring-fenced from the pestilence which affected the livestock. In fact, he sends officials up to Goshen to see what's going on. This is affecting the Egyptians. Is this affecting the Hebrews as well? Let's have a look. Well, his officials come back and tell him that the animals of the Hebrews are still alive. So he's now putting two and two together. But the, the officials have already got there first and they're getting really nervous. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 29, because it tells us 
as Moses describes the plague of hail that would be visited upon the land, the text tells us that whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock into the houses. So Pharaoh might not be listening, but his officials are listening, and they're doing their best to protect their property. So they're taking his pronouncements very seriously, even if Moses is not. Now I have to explain to you that hail is a very serious matter. It is a serious matter for us, as we've seen from what's happened in Sydney over the last few weeks. But in Egypt, it was a very uncommon phenomenon, as was hail, as was lightning and thunder. When such things happen in Egypt, in modern times, they very occasionally get major rainstorms in the desert. Huge damage is done. Some years ago, there was a major rainstorm near the Valley of the Kings, which, which, which did so much damage that several tombs, major tombs, were closed for over 15 years for repairs. Such was the level of damage. And in our country, when we see hail clouds approaching, they have that kind of strange green-grey colour and we know straight away what's going to happen and we take precautions by putting our cars in the garage and uh, making sure the animals are inside and so forth. But in those times and in that place, the rarity of hail, thunder and lightning, especially coming off the back of a crazy environment with the other plagues that had already happened. This was regarded as, a, in of itself, regardless of what had already happened with the other plagues, this was regarded as a, a terrifying display of, of divine wrath. Of course, they would see it as the wrath of their own. The average Egyptian would have seen this as a display of wrath of their own gods, but actually this was something else. Most Egyptians almost certainly would not have understood what was taking place within the walls of the royal palace. Rather, the Egyptians would have seen this as the anger of their own gods and the failure of their own king. The flax and barley are ruined. And for the first time, Pharaoh acknowledges his sin, but again he changes his mind about letting the Hebrews go. Several weeks later, the wheat is destroyed. It's about to come into bud, and it is destroyed by, uh, by a plague of locusts. Well... We've seen that we have plagues of mice. Many rural Australians know what it's like to have a plague of locusts. By this time, Pharaoh's officials are saying, and if you look at chapter 10, verse 7, they're saying, do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? I mean, they get it. They can see what's happening. They believe it. It's like Moses, yeah, we get that. We can see it. Yes, yes, we're with you. But the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he's, he's, he's having not a bar of it. He's actually trying to bargain. He's trying to bargain with Moses. And in bargaining with Moses, he's bargaining with God. He pleads, even pleads for forgiveness of his sin. He asks Moses to have God remove the locusts, which, which he does. God removes the locusts. But Pharaoh then will not let the people go. He refuses. It's like, oh, has he learned nothing? The next plague... Three days of darkness is so unnatural for, at this time. It's unnatural anyway, but by this time, of, at the end of all these plagues, every single Egyptian would have understood its meaning. Every single Egyptian. This is a series of supernatural events. But their gods have abandoned them. Their gods have abandoned them. Their sun god, Amun-Ra, is the primary deity of the Egyptian religious pantheon. That god had failed them. And this God was, was the supreme God of a vast array of gods. And even today, the, the, the temple compound of Amun-Ra in Luxor is 
one of the largest religious complexes in the world, rivaling that of the Vatican. This guy was a, this this was a big god to the Egyptians. The divine order had failed them. The king, whose titles included son of Ra, son of God, son of the sun, son of the sun god, this king had failed them. His connection with Amun-Ra was illusory. All had failed. In the face of such a comprehensive defeat, it's hard to believe that Pharaoh ultimately and stubbornly reneged his decision to let the people go. For that, in that decision, in that decision, he unwittingly unleashed the most devastating plague of all, of death. This final tenth plague touches Pharaoh himself and his people in a personal way, and he finally relents to Moses' request. But more on that next week. So what are the takeouts from this story? And there are several, two points, two main points I want to make. Firstly, let's examine the person of Pharaoh. On reading the narrative, we sympathise with the court officials who, as I mentioned, by the threat of locusts, are urging obedience to this god. Pharaoh trusted himself. He trusted that he could bargain. He trusted in his own divine power. But in reality, it was no power at all. In reality, Pharaoh is all of us. How many times have we bargained with God? How many times have you done that? Oh, you know, I want to be good, but not yet. We are not Pharaoh, but we're still guilty of pride and selfishness. Our selfie culture encourages us to be the idol, the ruler of our own lives, master of our destinies. We want to run our own life our own way without God. After the plague of locusts, Pharaoh himself is in no doubt that the hand of the Lord is at work. Yet God hardens his heart to make the point. The example of Pharaoh to us is that sinful opposition and disobedience to God leads to judgment. Second, this God, the I Am, Yahweh, God of the universe, God of creation, is also God of history. He is no stone statue, a cult statue in the back of a temple like the gods of Egypt and Mesopotamia. He is ultimately involved in and concerned with the affairs of his world. He's intervening directly in the lives of the ordinary Egyptian. In these events, he wants people to see that he is the Lord. He wants his people and the Hebrews and the Egyptians to remember what he did. He wants people to turn to him. But God has not finished, as we will see. Now, you might be asking, why didn't God speak to the Egyptians a different way? Well, what message would they have seen? What would they have responded to? Their very gods have turned the sky to darkness, can't stand before the Lord as the sky turns to darkness. In fact, we hear from elsewhere in the Bible, who can stand before the, before the Lord in his appearance? No one. How could God have spoken differently? And why doesn't he speak to us now, we sometimes say, when we see calamity brought upon the world? Well, he has appeared and he has spoken. He spoke through the acts of Moses and the rescue of the Hebrews out of Egypt. But God's penultimate rescue for us and for humanity as a whole is the person of Jesus. Jesus, God's son, who was fully God and fully man. 
This man came. He spoke, uh, he spoke of God's love. He performed miracles. He demonstrated his control over the natural world, just as God did in the, in the time of, of, of Pharaoh. He died on the cross, and he did this so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could have new life, the resurrection from the dead, and know God intimately. His power, God's power, was shown decisively by raising this man, Jesus, from the dead, a real man in real historical time. Friends, God's judgment is no less real for us as it was for Pharaoh. So let me ask you, are you king of your own life? What are your gods? Money, power, work, celebrity, family? I could probably tick most of those boxes myself. But friends, your gods will fail. At the point of death, at the point of your death, your gods will fail. You think your sin doesn't matter? Ignoring the signs? Look with care at the example of this man from history. Rather than turning your face away, seek mercy, grace, forgiveness and love from the living God, the God who is trustworthy and true. This is yours for the asking. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.